I'm Claire Edwards from Brain Smart People Development, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership, a series of conversations, insights, and inspirations with leaders who are real, raw, and authentic. Today, I'm not bringing you a conversation. What I have instead to share is of quite a different nature from the norm here at Authentic Leadership. It's a story, a story of hope, actually a a story of desperation and hope that will be told in two parts. My guest is Yasser Nazari and the topic of this podcast and the next one is the essence of hope in leadership. Well, the essence of hope in anything really. If this story moves or inspires you, and I cannot imagine for one moment that it won't, then please share it far and wide. Thank you. I met this month's guest through our involvement in Glow Up Careers, a career coaching social enterprise with a difference, and actually my guests in a previous podcast. If you're a regular listener to Authentic Leadership, you'll be familiar with my guest introductions and how they expand on our connection before we chat, but not today. Because today I'm going to let my guest tell his story, which actually I am hearing for the first time too. The critically important topic of our conversation today is the essence of hope in leadership. Yes, sir. Yes, Nazari. A very, very warm welcome to Authentic Leadership. Hello, Claire. Thanks for having me here. Oh, you're so very, very welcome. Thank you very much. So, yes, sir, I, I said it was going to be a story. So I'm wondering, as you know, stories do have a beginning, a middle and not yet an ending. Um, can you start at the beginning for us, please? And just tell us a little bit about your early life, where you grew up and and what your hopes and dreams were if you had them as a little boy. Sure. <laughs> A um, lot of memories, actually. Uh, so I am from Iran, um, originally from Tehran. I was born there and I grew up in kind of um, a middle uh, class family in Tehran. Um, I was a very good student, very smart on mathematics and not so good in other subjects. Um, I had a lovely family and uh, I remember uh, I wanted to be a pilot. That's why oh. I had a photo of mine at the age of seven or eight with the pilot costume. The, the, I had the uh, uniform of a pilot because my father bought it for me and I took a picture uh, with my father on that, um, that uh, uniform. So oh. it was kind of my dream to be a pilot. But as we all know, life doesn't always go as you plan and as mm. your dream. So... Uh, that was my kind of early childhood. Um, I was the first child and also the first grandchild, which um, I had a lot of attention when I was little. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah, that's a little bit of my childhood. Okay, so you said you're the first child. Who came after you? Yeah, so... Um, as I mentioned, I was the first child of the family. So I got two siblings after me was my sister with a few years kind of younger uh, sister and then another brother, which is kind of five to six years younger than me. So three of us 
in a little family. Yeah. Um, so two siblings. Okay. Okay. And so, you know, growing up um, into your teenage years and if, you know, that dream of being a pilot was still strong for you or what started to become really important to you as you became a teenager? Well, there is a little more story into that, uh, which I usually don't share um, in other um, kind of spaces, uh, especially the work-related stories Mm -hmm. that I'm kind of involved. So my teenager time was much involved with my parents' divorce, a lot of family issue and parents' divorce. So all of my dreams were kind of shattered. Um, uh, For a while, I stopped going to school and um, I had a lot of difficulties dealing with my parents uh, divorce and then later on when I get uh, kind of grow up I was kind of start getting involved with all these protests political protests uh, in Iran which um, kind of start my journey to kind of leave Iran which I later on share with you okay okay yeah I'm, I'm sorry to hear that I I was 16 when my parents divorced, so um, I've got not maybe not not the same understanding, but uh, certainly empathy, empathy for your situation. Yeah, thank you. But there was not much space to think about being a pilot anymore. Of course. Um, and so, when you said um, you know you you were getting involved in political protests, if it's okay f- for me to ask you. What what were you protesting for? What was important to you? What 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 were you valuing at the time, yes, sir? Sure. This was kind of later on. I was a bit older than a teenager, but mm-hmm. as I was growing up, you know, we all develop values and we all uh, observe the world around us and we see issues. And then I was kind of a person that I couldn't sit still if something wrong. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't uh, keep silent, so I would go out and you know talk about it, whether it was like in a family gathering or in a classroom or in a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So same thing happened in a kind of um, a society that I was growing up, and then uh, we were under kind of a religious dictatorship, and then I start to understanding the lack of freedom and how we are controlled in the country through the religion, through the political means that our government were using. And then the little protests were happening around me and I little by little get involved and understood what's happening and understood that we all young people were fighting for freedom and we wanted our our freedom back. We we didn't want our government to control us. And then little by little, I start going to these protests that were happening here and there. And by here and there, it would be like this year and next year or this month and next month or Mm -hmm. the gap would be different but as I was growing up I would get involved more and more and more seriously and um, until until the last one which uh, went really bad okay um, I'll I'll come back to that in a second and I'm just wondering you know we're talking on the on the theme of hope and You've already shared that obviously your, your hopes were dashed for becoming a pilot, but through through the protesting and, and your fights for freedom, did you have, at any time, did you have hope that, that the situation would change or it, you just had to do what was right for you and your values? 
I think it was a mix of it. Uh, obviously, I mean, it was more hope when I was younger and it was my kind of early involvement in these kind of movements. And as I would go to more protests, of course, I, I was a standing for my values and hmm. I was a standing for what is right because by then I wasn't only a teenager, I was an adult hmm. who understand the world at least a little bit more than a teenager and uh, I would I would fight for what is right Mm. but as we were suppressed each time and I would see the behavior and how government respond to these protests which most of the time were uh, peaceful I would lose hope more and more Um, so because the treatment of a protesters or a treatment to a protest by our government in Iran is very different with what you see here. Uh, For example, opposite the town hall, you see a bunch of people protesting and there's police protecting them. (laughs) It's a totally different story. Mm -hmm. So uh, at what point did you realize that this was becoming dangerous, I suppose, for you? Uh, I guess it was when I was already, I don't know, 26, um, 7, uh, and uh, the protests were getting bigger and bigger. Uh, for example, the last one I was involved, or a series of protests I was involved before I leave Iran was uh, called Green Movement, and it was after the election that was happening in Iran and uh, we were unhappy with the result and we felt that government manipulating all the results of the election and they put people they want in power rather than what people vote for or who people Mm -hmm. vote for. So uh, I remember, uh, you know, you you see police in a street not protecting the protesters but shooting at protesters. Yeah. So that that's that's the case, and every day you hear people are arrested, they are disappeared, the family go in front of these governments' um, buildings, and there is no one responding them. And today, as I'm talking to you, on top of you know thousands and thousands people were killed in different protests. There are a lot of people are just disappeared, and nobody has answer for them. Like nobody knows where they are. So. I would kind of I was learning that I'm dealing with the, with something really dangerous and something very very serious. It's it's not a matter of like punishment, court, or only jail or or, or the, being detained somewhere. It's it's life uh, and death. Yeah, yeah. So what what choices what choices did you have? How 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 did you take action? What was the next step? Well, again, I, I'm still in Iran now, well, uh, and I haven't left Iran yet. So for me, it was easy option, which was a dangerous one. Uh, as I said, since I was a kid, I, I couldn't, sorry, shut up. I, I had to talk about what is right mm. or talk about or talk against what is not right. Mm. And for me, it was an easy decision. I have to go. I have to participate. And a lot of people, a lot of my friends would just silence and ignore everything and just go about their life. And me and a lot of other people wouldn't. So um, I think in that sense, it was an easy decision to just stand up for my right or for Iranians' right and go to a street. 
and uh, it was more scary because, uh, uh, for example, in a few of like last protests, I one of my close friends got shot. I I stuck in a place that I was in front line, and then police was front of us and start shooting people, and I could see people falling down next to me, and I had to escape. So it become like really, really real stuff that I was touching and yeah. living every day. I still smell the the gas, <laughs> the tear gas, yeah. and all those gunfires and all those smokes in the protest. So it wasn't anymore a calm protest because you know they start shooting people. So in the end, I kind of lose hope on changing this situation, mm-hmm. and the only option was pack and go because anytime they could come after me. So how? I mean, how did you decide where to go? Um, you knew you had to leave, yes. but 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 to where? Exactly. Um, that that's actually a question everyone asks. And when you are kind of on a run, you don't really think, or you don't you don't have Excel sheet to look at the data or something. <laughs> you just know you have to leave. Yeah, to make a strategic decision, you just pack yeah. and go. And yeah. In my situation, then a lot of my friends were arrested in one of very like a, one of the very last protests we were involved. One got killed. A few of them were arrested, and then how it works is, if your close friends are arrested in that under that regime, you know they come after you because yeah. each of those person have to come with a list of names. There is there is no no. They don't take no for answer. Yeah. Even even if you make it up, so I knew I would be in one of those lists anyway, and I have to go, and I can't live with this stress. Um, so, in that time, I left Iran two thousand and eleven, and the one of the very easiest country to go was Indonesia because they didn't need visa from Iranians, and it okay. was on arrival. And also, I had a friend who went that way recently in that time and I said okay I, I just go that way to to figure it out so I just you know had a backpack and a ticket in my hand and the only fear I had was in the airport because I wasn't sure if I'm in a lease they would take me in the airport and if not ah. I can pass the gate so that's that's the last risk I'm gonna take and um, I have no other chance that was the kind of a situation I was in oh boy that must have been a difficult time going through your passport control and uh, actually waiting to get onto the plane. If you talk to Iranians, everyone, uh, even now, if you don't, if you're not involved in anything, the airport um, governed by um, by Supreme, what they call it, um, Revolutionary Guard, and they mm-hmm. are, it's a scary experience. Mm. The airport, anyways, but for my situation. Yes, even worse because um, again, it was fifty-fifty. And, and were you with anybody, Yasser? Were, were you with friends or family? One of my friends who we uh, were kind of together here and there in these protests were with me. Uh, but yeah, he was from our neighborhood, um, and we left together. Okay, and and so you left your family behind. Yes, uh, that was a hard, tough goodbye. But my mom was kind of happy. 
because I remember mom once said, please leave, otherwise you lose your head here. Because she mm. knew me, right? She, she, <laughs> I was her son uh, and she knew I wouldn't shut up. I wouldn't sit at home when there is protests out there. Yeah. So you arrive in Indonesia. Um, were, were there connections there? Were there people to meet you? What did you do? Uh, again, I have to open a bracket here. There are a lot of things before I leave, which I okay. can't really give details. Um, yeah, sure. That's why I just um, keep it um, straightforward with kind of a general story uh, because yeah. it put other people in danger. And just yeah, of course. Deportation. So um, back to your question, uh, it was about early days in Indonesia, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, well... Um, I had a bit of, bit of saving and a bit of money. I arrived in Indonesia and I um, I went to, uh, with this friend, we went to Jakarta and then we started digging information that what is next because we had already friends who left Iran with different direction. We had friends who left in different kind of occasion or protests. They went to Turkey, they went to Indonesia, they went to Europe and we kind of seek information what we can do from here. And the mm-hmm. only things that came up was taking a boat from Indonesia to Australia because there is no way you go from there to Europe or you know to America or Canada or somewhere else. Okay. And the other thing is you I couldn't stay in Indonesia because I was I had visa for one month, then I would be illegal. And I couldn't go back to Iran as well. So so you had to organize everything within the space of one month? Technically, yes, but okay. that wasn't the story. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's actually happened, start from there. Um, we dig information, we call friends from here and there, then until we find a, a smuggler. And I met this guy in Jakarta and he said, well, that was his job organizing boat to send people from Indonesia to Australia. Mm-hmm. And then he asked me for 6,000 US dollar and it was all my saving. Um, and, uh, and with my friend and he said, well, we don't have any choice to make here. We, we have to go with this and we can't live in Australia, in, in Indonesia as well. So we agreed with him and then he put us in a place and actually my whole story start from there again. I left because of those, uh, because of fear of being persecuted or killed in the protests or being arrested. And now Mm -hmm. I'm in Indonesia where I don't know any language, Indonesian Mm. language. I didn't know any English. I didn't know anyone except my friend. I'm running out of money and my visa, the clock is ticking on my visa as well. Mm-hmm. and I have to make a decision. And these decisions are big ones. After each other, I have to make it in the shortest span of time. Yeah. And um, it, it was a scary. But again, you know, uh, I had to go. I had to go with it. So we decided it, and then he put us in a place with other asylum seekers, which I came to know from different countries, and it was a little apartment somewhere in Jakarta, which I had no mm-hmm. idea about. And uh, it has started from there. So uh, the, 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 the promise was we will send you by boat in a few weeks' time. And that, that's it. You, you will go. You don't need anything. 
And um, um, we had a little bit money. We could go grocery shop every day, come back to the unit and eat until we get the phone call that we are ready to go. But that phone call never happened. It took, yes. oh. it took forever. It took more than a month. My visa was out and uh, I had no idea to, what to do. And then it, it is not like a shop you negotiate with the seller. It's a people smuggler. You have no idea how or what he can do to you in a foreign country. So you can't argue with him and you have to be patient. And each time he would say, just be patient. And and had you already handed over the money? Uh, for the first time, no. That's, the money was okay. still with us. Uh, he got a bit of deposit, but the money was still with us. And my one visa was out. And my patient yeah. was out as well because, you know, I'm, I want to run. And now I'm stuck in a country that I have no idea about. And I was mm. frustrated. But anyways, the time came uh, after, I think, uh, like 40 days, 45, one month and a, and a half. I mm-hmm. already had no visa. I couldn't go out really. I was scared if immigration arrest me. And I, of course, I couldn't think about going back to Iran. And I just was waiting yeah. for this guy to call us to go forward. So um, the time came and he said, get ready at night. A van come and pick you up. And then later on, I figured that there was a lot of units in that apartment that he had people in. And he organized 10 van, each van like seven, eight people. And we departed from there. So that was my first experience kind of leaving Indonesia, hoping to get the boat and finally go to a safe place that I can start something, you know, or at least be safe and feel like, oh, okay, now I'm somewhere f- f- safe that I can start thinking about life. Mm. Uh, okay, I heard you. I just heard you say, and re- remember, listeners, I am hearing this story for the first time myself as well. Um, when you said that was the first experience, what ha- what happened then? Uh, well, the plan, as we were told, was we they took us by van bring us to a shore which is a few hours from jakarta and then we, we go to the boat and we depart and usually mm-hmm. it's like one or two days on a seat until you get to australia and then imagine i'm in there for about 45 days roughly two months and i've heard all sort of stories about the boat sinking or people smuggling Ugh. stealing your money and you know immigration arrest you and that's happened to us so we were around 10 vans full of people on the very middle of bush i had no idea where i was obviously out of jakarta and i saw immigration has a stop sign in the middle of road and they got Ugh. all of us in and uh, they sent us to a nearest immigration center, which was like, a, you know, 10, 15 minutes from that spot. And it was like a little town with a big, um, big yard and a, a little office on the corner. And it was an immigration office of that town. Uh, that was my first experience. And I was really shocked. Again, coming out of Iran because I didn't want to lose my head or being arrested forever in, in the under. Islamic regime now mm-hmm. I am 
middle of nowhere. I actually had no idea where I am. I just knew I left Jakarta and I had no idea of direction, no phone, no money. The money was gone already to to smuggler and under immigration who I can't even understand their language. Mm. Um, and that's that's a start from there. And I, I thought and I came to reality of it that it's not that easy. Oh boy. So your immigration stops you. Was there a possibility that they could send you back to Iran? Uh, under uh, international, um, like humanitarian international law, yeah. um, Indonesia cannot forcibly reject you or send you back because okay. they have UNHCR, United Nations office there, and they can just mm-hmm. offer you a registration with them then you can leave okay. there until your process, your case being processed for, you know, third country. That That's a kind of on paper, but all sort of things happen there. So you're in the middle of nowhere, in in an immigration center. What, what happens then? Well, that's where I think something from my... I don't know, my character start that I couldn't sit still and I couldn't just give up mm. easily. I don't know where yeah. it come from, but I think somewhere in childhood, I pick it up. <laughs> so in the middle of chaos, the vans would come into the yard one by one. They take us out to the yard and people are screaming, babies crying, you know, all sorts of nationalities, you know, all the asylum seekers, families, single People from all, you know, Iraq, um, I don't know, Iran, Afghanistan, you know, it was a mix and it was very chaotic. And then people were queuing for toilets and these immigration officers were talking like Bahasa, Indonesia, we didn't understand. So it was a bit of chaos. And I saw Mm. an opportunity to escape. And that was my first escape in Indonesia where I had no idea where I'm going, but I knew I had to go. You escaped the immigration center. You, the first one, yes, that was the first Whoa. escape. So I, uh, how? I signaled my friend and said, "Let's go to toilet because people are going to toilet." And immigration officers let them because you know, like ten vans full of people. Of course, they go to mm. toilet. Mm. So, and it was very chaotic, and they had no idea what they do. You know, there was like a bunch of offices with a lot of people, like seven, eight people, mm. and then it was a queue and. The toilet was near the wall. The wall was a bit short. And on top of wall was two layers of fence. And my, I asked my friend, said, hey, I mean, all of this happened in a, less than a minute, right? I signaled him and said, we can go behind the building of the toilet that we can get hidden. And then from there, we can quickly jump from the wall and we are out. And uh, I went there. I gave him a signal. He came. And then we help each other go to up, up the wall and cross that fence. And they were very busy with other people there. And we were mm-hmm. behind that kind of building, toilet building. So they couldn't really see mm-hmm. us. And I think we were a bit lucky because we decided quickly. Because afterward, I've heard the story that they put all people in the building. So nobody could come to the yard anymore. Right. So that was my first escape. And again, it wasn't, <laughs> there was no... Uh, information given it was just instinct i have to go and yes yeah. yeah and i left and i remember i had ten dollar in indonesian money which was 
100,000 rupiah in my in my sneaker and my friend had a couple of I don't know 100 dollars in his sneaker <laughs> and we jumped <laughs> from the wall and we and I remember it was like a little town and it was farm next to that uh uh that that office or that building of emigration it was like lands mm-hmm. and you know uh, farms and it was little house and little alleys it was little town so we just ran and it was night so we just get far away enough and we start looking at each other and just what just happened now we are in oh, our boy. own no money we don't even have phone <laughs> we are in the middle of I, I literally didn't know where I am. I am in. I yeah. couldn't even go to, back to Jakarta because I had no direction. So that was that was when reality hit again and again. <laughs> I said, okay, oh, well, gosh. Now you're on your own, buddy. You have to go. Yeah. And and was your friend like you know you were both in agreement on your decisions? Yeah, definitely. Again. He was very happy that I signal him because otherwise he would have stuck there. He wasn't thinking yeah. straight. He was shocked. And uh, when he saw the opportunity, and we knew each other for years from Iran, and oh. we just we just did it. And of course, he he was happy because he he's already out of immigration. Imagine yeah. you're under immigration, you're out of visa. What will happen to you? Yeah. So, so what next? We saw uh, in Indonesia, there is a lot of coffee nets. Kids stay there, teenagers play games all night. And it was half closed. And I saw like, I don't know, the owner with his friends were playing game, you know, this PlayStation game. And I mm-hmm. went in and I said, I want to make a call and I pay you money. And I, my money was in my hand, showing and talking with my hand, not with language, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, yeah. Okay, okay. yeah. So I make a call and I called the smuggler because I, I had the number, right? The only thing I memorized, I think it was, I, I, I had not memorized it or my friend had it in his piece of paper. I don't know. So we called mm-hmm. from the coffee net and he responded. I had no hope he was responding, but he did, uh, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, he did. And he said... Um, and it was very strange because he said, I know the story. I said, how do you know it? We just been arrested and all people are stuck there and we just escaped. He said, yeah, okay, you did a good job. Just come back to Jakarta. I said, I have no idea where it's Jakarta. Just, just, just come back to Jakarta. <laughs> From where? Exactly. So he said, I don't know what you're doing. I'm not there. I'm not even in Jakarta. But what I can do is you come back to Jakarta. That was his word go to the UNHCR office and stay front of that office. That's the safest place you can be. And in the morning, I send people to rescue you and your friends. I said, okay. Well, I said, okay, because I have no other option, right? You can't argue. Yeah, exactly. You can't, yeah. Uh, you're, and I was shaking. You know, I escaped from, <laughs> from, you know, in a foreign country, I escaped from immigration. I was like shaking. And we start, you know, with a broken language asking these guys, where is Jakarta and where is Jakarta? And he said, well, you're a few hours away. Take this mini bus and then take this bus. And so we went to a place called Bogur, which is two hours from Jakarta, from that village. Mm-hmm. And from Bugur, we by bus we went to Jakarta. So when we arrived in Jakarta, it was early morning, and we asked for UNHCR office, you know, 
again, no phone, no smartphone, no internet, right? You can't Google things. <laughs> so I remember when I arrived, we were super hungry. We, we bought two Indomie, you know, these... Um, yeah, noodles. yeah, the noodles. Yeah, we bought it from these street people and then um, these street food kind of a stall. We eat it and then we went to um, to UNICEF office. I exactly remember the building. And opposite to that building, there was a bus stop. And on the, on the little alley or little pathway was a little chair. And, you know, in Jakarta is not really very clean city you know it's like Mm -hmm. not that clean like sydney so i and we were so tired so i slept on that bus stop and my friend sleep on that uh that chair in in the street so uh that was the story and we at least felt safe you're back in jakarta okay yeah he said it's safe and you know we are away from that what happened so we were a bit kind of feeling safe but they still you're in foreign country, you escape immigration, you feel you're guilty and everyone looking for you. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I'm sure you'd be paranoid yeah. looking looking yeah. around everywhere and as if everybody knew what, what you were doing. So you get to UNHCR? Yeah, but we didn't, we, we had no idea what is UNHCR. He just told us what it is and go there and just stay front of it because that area is safe, not that going mm-hmm. there. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't say go register with it. I had no idea what is UNHCR. He said that building is safe if you go stay there until I send people there. It he didn't say go in or you know it was yeah he just yeah. stayed front of the building because it was safe. And I, I've got to ask you then because you know you you'd been kept waiting day in day out day in day out for him to call you. Did you have? Any belief or hope that it, to trust him that he that he was gonna pick you up or have someone pick you Again, up? Again, I remember I told you I was there for about two months, forty five, fifty days before the depart. Yeah. So in that duration, you meet a lot of asylum seekers and you hear a lot of stories. So when we escaped and we went to that coffee net and called him, I had no hope that he would respond because. A lot of smugglers, they just get the money, they organize something fake, and they take your yeah. money and go. It's that simple. And I've seen it. So I had no hope. But this guy responded. And this guy, and the morning, we, did, we didn't have phone in Jakarta. He said, hey, there mm. is some people. And we were obviously not Indonesia in front of that building. That was easy spoiler, right? And then in the <laughs> yeah. morning, I saw a guy came. Uh, it was really early morning. Uh, with a nice car, he stopped at front of the bus stop. Um, and he saw me, he said, are you Yasser? I said, yes. He said, you guys escaped last night? I said, yes. He handed me a pocket full of money. It was like $300, but in rupiah, which was 3 million rupiah, which was, yeah, three around $300. Mm-hmm. And he said, we know what happened. All of your friends, not, not all actually, Few of your friends, friends means the people we were together last night, other passengers, yeah. other sons. He said, he said, a lot of them are escaped after you guys. They are coming. They are on the way. He knew everything. I had no idea yeah. how he knew everything. And just wait here. When they come, get a place with this money, like a little motel. I stay there for mm-hmm. two nights. We want to make sure nobody's after you. And then we remove you to other place. 
that's what he said. And he just closed the window and you went. And then after a few hours, I saw one by one, these people arrive. Some of them didn't have shoes. Some of them was full of mud, dirty, you know, (laughs) it was, it was chaos. So apparently after us, they start fighting with immigration and some of them managed to escape. But with a challenging kind of phase, a challenging phase. So you're in this little motel. Exactly. How and did you just stay the two nights? Yeah, there? we we wait for all the people. They arrived. I we told them what happened, and this is the money they gave us. And they asked us what to do, and we said, "Okay, we have no option. Let's do it." Some were angry, some mm-hmm. were upset. You know, you know, yeah, I had, you had to deal with people, right? So we went. There, around the corner, we find a cheap motel and we stayed there two nights and these guys approached us after two days and they put us in another apartment. These complex, big apartments to give us like a few units. But it was really difficult. That's where my journey become really difficult because now I'm scared because I escaped from authority. Yeah, yeah. I don't have visa. I don't have money. I don't share any of these to my family. <laughs> so they don't know what's what's going on with you, where you are, anything? Nothing. And didn't want to worry my mom. And I, if I, I mean, I got the chance to call them through phone, people's phone. You know, I asked the guy, give us a phone to call or other passengers. We managed to. I managed to kind of call them a few times, but never mention what happening to me because I didn't want to okay. put them in a stress. And then, yeah, and then yeah. it, well, to make it easier, this was the start of the journey and it was my first kind of a setback and it was like, I was really on shock. Mm. And after yeah. that, we were, we had no money for food. He had to come and bring food up, you know, I think he was, the first one was a good smuggler because he was trying to help us. So he yeah. would bring food and, yeah. you know, until he managed for a second round, which he did. So, oh my goodness. Um, so tell me about the start of the second round. It, it was more difficult because now we are in a, again, with all those feelings and being scared and, you know, I think his plan went wrong. So now we are in a place. I remember I was in a two bedroom apartment in this, that complex. We were like 14 people in it. And we, we oh, wouldn't wow. dare to open the door sometimes because we, we were afraid yeah. like immigration is looking for us. You know, you're paranoid. You yeah. have no idea. And then you have heard the story that immigration sometimes come to these apartments looking for overstay people or asylum seekers. Um, and arrest them. So we were so afraid, and it took another month, I guess. And we were just eating instant noodle, nothing else. It was just instant noodle, um, limited access to outdoor or outside because, again, we were scared. And he was saying that don't go out and don't make noises here and just yeah. keep quiet until we plan for next round. And um, Next round happened, and um, it was like about a month later. He asked us to go to that town, which was near Jakarta. He replaced us to a big villa, 
villa wasn't like a fancy villa it was like a little place mm. out of jakarta uh a place called chisarwa which is two three hours from jakarta and he said this is the place closer to the shore we you stay a few nights and then we go from there again so it was second attempt okay didn't go well because again <laughs> this is this this is my story is a bit complex because I had five attempts. Five. five attempts. So I'm giving you a heads up. Um, this time, the whole plan cancelled because obviously his previous boat sank in the ocean and some of the passengers come back after him. That's why we saw the passengers coming angry and that on that on the ah. villa looking for this guy and said what happened okay they said we were here a month ago he sent us by boat and we sang now we lost everything we come to to see him to talk to him or you know to you know we we are after him where is him so we, we don't see him he just called you know yeah he doesn't show he doesn't hang around with us he's a smuggler <laughs> That's mm-hmm. why when we heard that the story from those people who were angry now at that villa after a few nights, we packed and go. You packed and went. We all, yeah, we all packed and go because we ah. we we didn't want that happen to us and we lost hope on him. So if that's the story, we don't want to trust this guy anymore. So that's the night that really got bad. Um, and by that time, I'm already there for about two, three months in Jakarta, again over visa, um, overstayed, and I'm afraid if immigration arrests me, what will happen? No money, but we got a bit of friends because we were in this journey together for the past three months, right? So we are yeah, a few yeah. people now going through the same thing, <laughs> and go back to Jakarta again. The rest of the story. Oh boy! So, so what next? So, I don't want to give you guys headache. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is me trying not giving up and trying yeah, to yeah. keep going and keep going because first I can't go back. Second, I have to go forward. There is no other option. I have to try. And I have to try hard, and I was doing that. But was there still was there still hope there, or was it just pure desperation and instinct, and 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 you had to act? Well, it was act as you go, right? And, uh, yeah. You built. I built a lot of connection there through the journey. We knew people now. Other asylum seekers come through. Other smugglers. We know them now. So you built a kind of a connection and knowledge as you go. Yeah, uh, but desperate in the same time because now you don't have money. You went through two attempts, nothing happened. Um, you are you escape from from authority or immigration over you know all these things in your head playing up, and you are stressed. It's like you are living with the stress. You can't sleep at night. You can't eat enough food, and you are on a run always, all the yeah, time, yeah. and. You feel homesick in the same time, and uh, it's it was very difficult. But again, it was something in me, or 
those people that we didn't want to give up, we want to find next yeah. solution. What is next? What we can yeah. do in this situation? Because we knew we cannot go back. There is no go back. So, yeah, so t- tell us about, I suppose, the the attempt that that got you onto the boat. So this happened for four or five months, and the last attempt was about five months. I was there mingling back and forth through these towns, Jakarta, other towns, people smugglers looking for uh, a person who can help us to go. I asked... Finally, I asked my mom again to send another money for me. She, you know, with difficulty brought money to for my other attempt. So it was very, very challenging uh, five months. Mm. Um, and uh, the last one, uh, they put us in a bus, exactly like the first one, but this time wasn't yeah. man. It was four buses, big one. I exactly remember that night we were in a very big garage, four bus next to each other, and the van would come one by one, putting people to these buses. And it took a few hours till this bus, these buses got full, and we departed from Jakarta. We were twenty-four mm-hmm. hours on the way, and we would only stop for food because we couldn't go out of the bus. All the windows were um, closed. And yeah. the bosses had toilets, so you didn't need to go out. And only they stopped okay. to get the food, put it in there, and then we go. So it took us 24 hours from Jakarta to Surabaya. Uh, Surabaya is in the end of Java, which is near Bali, but it's still in Java. Okay. We went there, and it was midnight. We arrived in a port, and it was my first time finally see a port and see, see the boat. <laughs> the boat was in the wow. middle of the port. And with these speed, little speed boats, they would take people little by little, few by few, group by group to the boat. And mm-hmm. it was a scary. When I got to the boat, it was really scary because it was very old. It was like a box into a vast water. It, oh. it didn't look stable. It didn't look fancy. It didn't look all right at all. But again, you have no option. You can't argue. You don't have options. And especially after my journey, after a few months, desperate to finally getting into the boat, I was in. And then yeah. all those people were in the boat and then we depart. It was And was your friend with you? Yes, at the time? Yeah, that friend was with me. A lot of new group. Some of those people were through this journey with me. Uh, I knew some of them escaped with me, after me, and we had kind of a similar story. Stuck there for a few months. Some of them lost their money. Some of them were newbies. They just arrived and were so lucky to get to the boat. Families went upstairs. We stayed downstairs, a lot of single people. And we were tired already, 24 hours. And I remember I was... Mm. And the engine started and then we departed. And little by little, it was just water just ocean we couldn't see the land. and and how many people in total were on the boat it was roughly 250 250 people on that boat and um, we departed and then it it was early morning because i could see it's not night anymore it was daytime 
early early morning and then the i remember i was so excited and also fearful in the same time because all those stories would play in my head that you know people who sank and people who of died course. in ocean but excited because after all these challenges i'm finally in a boat going to a safe place yeah and did you know how long it was going to take again i've i've heard a lot of stories while i was in indonesia before departure mm. the people the luckiest were like 35 five hours two days and the worst scenario would you get lost and it take like few days until you you get to australian water and then the navy would find you so i've 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 had like sort of mixed story in my head okay so you're on the boat and how long and and, and what happens next so again um with group of people we were there like in a deck downstairs sitting and talking we were excited sharing stories finally going and then it was early morning again super tired and i it was a little deck in in dancers and i start laying down on that deck mm-hmm. and the people were already asleep and very tired and then the rain start and i saw the, the the sea went a bit rough but it was really tired i went for a kind of a nap and i just lay down on that deck Mm-hmm. And I saw the boat going left and right. It was like, because I was laying down, I could feel it strongly. Ah, okay. Um, and now my feet is hanging from the deck. My whole body is on the deck, sleeping. And I drag some of these backpack from others under my head, trying to rest. And this left and right thing happened. It wasn't stable at all. It was so scary. It was so on a stable that you could pe- you could hear people screaming because it was oh, it was like a roller coaster and then one time i opened my eyes it was left right left right and it went right 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 didn't come back because now imagine i'm sleeping on a deck and left and right means both going to one side and the other side and once it went to the other side and didn't come back so we went to the ocean from the side so the boat capsized the boat turned over turned over exactly and there was two big window in each side and now the water pushing in as i say always with the force of indian ocean pushing in and i never forget the sound of the engine and the sound of the water coming through the window to to a kind of a capsized uh, boat that I was hanging there. <laughs> oh my goodness! So um, the boats capsized, and you, and you told me before you were on the bottom deck. So how? I mean, how did you escape? How did other people escape? Ooh, um, that's where. <laughs> um, again, I I think I was very lucky. Um, because now the deck I was sleeping on now capsized. So it's on upside down and I could hang on it with my hand kind of hanging from the edge of the deck. 
and the boat was on its side the water was coming through the windows in and i believe the water pushed me out from the other window with a bit of force of myself but i could see like people all around hitting to the wall and to the deck and all luggage was all over the place um and it, all this happened in a second or a few seconds yeah and yeah. Uh, i remember the only things i remember i looked at my upper kind of um because now I'm hanging from that deck, I look up, the other window in the other side was above me, and I try to reach it, and I think the water helps, helps me as well, as well. So I got mm-hmm. out from the other side. Again, I, I, it's a rough idea I have. Um, I don't yeah, remember yeah. it all happened in a second. But I remember when I come out of water, I was far away from the boat already. It just pushed me away. Oh, wow. Okay. And I always say I'm very lucky because a lot of people are stuck there. You know, if, you know, among those luggages, you know, under the deck, people were sleeping, or even a person who was scared of dying, if he or she would grab me, I would would be dead by now, I guess. Um, And your friend? Uh, I didn't see him. But later on, I saw him because he was still alive in the water. Okay. And and how many people did survive, Yasser? So it took us a few hours after that, uh, which is, again, another story in the story, but I don't want to give mm. too much details. So from 250, only 47 survived eventually. Oh, my God. Uh, and I, I was lucky to be one of them. And how and and how were you rescued? Uh, well, so after I come out of the water, like I just I was really shocked in the water. And I'm I'm really <laughs> very lucky that I could swim because at least I could swim a little bit to hang around. Yeah, and I saw yeah. the boat was capsized. Now I'm far away because the water pushed me out, and I saw people all around the boat, the bits and pieces from boat, all the luggage, and uh, there was a piece of like a big piece of wood broken from the the, the boat, and a few people were hanging on it. And it was closer mm-hmm. to me, so I went there, and I, we started talking, and I saw people were shocked. They had no idea what happened. I don't know. What I was yeah. shocked too and after a few minutes they start arguing that the boat will go down and everyone around the boat go down with it and the other one would say no it's wooden it wouldn't go down so that was argument and one of these guys said i don't care i don't trust this with little bit of food i'm gonna swim back to the boat which is now capsized right upside down mm-hmm. and people who are around the boat are hanging on it Right, they're getting back to the boat, just hanging to the boat, and we would we we were seeing this uh, this thing, and he said, oh, "I'm going there," so he starts swimming, and we, again without thinking, I start swimming behind him. So we mm-hmm. left, we left that piece of wood and we swim back to the boat, which is now upside down, or I think on its side, and people are. Um, grabbing each other and the first people grabbing the boat so we were 
like a chain hanging to the yeah boat, yeah boats yeah so and after a while um it, it, we were in that situation for hours and after a few hours we saw a fisherman approached again it was only water we couldn't see any land and i don't know how far the fisherman came but i don't think that was a spot that fishermen usually go because we were in oh. the middle of ocean so i think he saw something from outside and we saw a dot actually we didn't know who what it is but we were kind of hopeful and i remember a few hours being on that boat um like on on the side of it or on top of it because again we were hanging on it we, it wasn't stable mm-hmm. it was capsized and sometimes the the wave would hit and it would roll over and it would kill a few people because people oh, couldn't God. let go um a fisherman came and came and get closer and i remember one thing i saw before that fisherman came which make everyone happy was a seagull we were hopeless yeah. hanging there and we saw a seagull above our head in the middle of ocean and people start crying shouting and um and after a few i guess an hour or so that fisherman arrived oh my goodness so the seagull was a, a symbol that you were close to something or what what, what did the seagull symbolize for you i think you? again it was it was hope um you are yeah. in the middle of ocean you experience all these things for hours and you don't see anything except water and now you see a seagull so immediately it gives you a sense of hope it's a it was a big signal for us <laughs> so you're one of the few people that still enjoys to see seagulls rather than getting annoyed at them. <laughs> yeah, it's annoying, but I never forget the experience I have with them, which is a very different experience. Absolutely. Wow. So the fisherman, was he able to pick you all up? No, no, <laughs> no, of course not. Um, he was on a, like a dot from far away and he got closer and closer and well, we saw, okay, he's a fisherman with this tiny Asian fish boat. these little ones and that's why i was shocked he came that far so he saw us and poor guy shocked he never seen such a thing like a boat Mm. capsized with a lot of dead body around and a lot of people hanging around so he stopped like i don't know 20 meters 15 meters away and he did he did a smart thing otherwise he would be sink as well right he has stopped and the time he has stopped and people start shouting come help us rescue us blah blah yeah, blah yeah people start swimming toward him and again instinctively i start swimming as well so now a bunch yeah. of people swimming toward him and he has start taking these people up to his boat and meanwhile, he went and, you know, this block, big block of ice, he would put it out. He had it in a storage because he wanted to his boat to be lighter. Um, so he put all this ice out. And then one time he said, stop, stop. I can't take anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry about that. That's okay. Um, and um, 34, only 34 he took. 
and um, and then he said, I can't take any more, otherwise we gonna capsize here as well. Because, yeah. because I know the capacity of my boat and all of this without any language, right? It was all mm, sign language. And he just could say, stop, stop, stop. And then he started the engine and he went. And now all those people who couldn't get to him are desperate and screaming and crying. And now we are in the boat, in the fisherman boat. Say, hey, stay there. We send help because now we are on the way, right? Yeah. So it took us a few hours or so. I had no idea. It was like really hard to measure time then. And I saw the port from far away and we get to the port and he was trying to call. He didn't have any signal. By the time we got near the port, he started talking Indonesian and we couldn't understand, but we would assume he's asking for help and he share what's happening. So by the time we arrived in the port, in that little fisherman kind of a village, it was packed by people, by police and by immigration. So, oh, and it was Indonesian land. It was Indonesian land, yes. And um, and um, now we are back on on the ground. I I never forget that experience when I put my feet on the ground. I was yeah. like. My goodness, because remember I left that piece of food go back to that tilted boat? Yeah, yeah. I swim like at 15 minutes, 10 minutes, and it was the scariest thing I ever done in my life because I was afraid of shark. Uh. And I was looking at to, into the water because I couldn't stop looking as I was swimming. And I was thinking how deep it is, and that would scare me, right? So yeah. all, after all those experiences, now my, my feet are on land. I was like, wow. <laughs> you were very grateful. Oh, my God. I, I was flying. I was like, it was, a, it was a very unique experience. Although the stress, yeah. the fear. So, so you're back on land, um, Indonesian land. And what happened to you then? So, as a normal human would do, asking for help for the rest of people, right? Yeah, and of we course. Did that. We protested. There was a little room. They put us in that room. All these people start coming. Doctors came, nurses came, newspaper came, all these reporters, police, government bodies. It was packed with different people and different, I don't know, government bodies. Uh, representatives the only thing we were saying was there are people there because we saw them we left them and you guys haven't done anything and it's already a few hours we need them now here they, you know there are survivors mm-hmm. there and you can't believe this it takes three days until they find the rest and of oh, course no. not of all, not all of them survived. Only 13 more survived after three days. So in that three days, we were protesting against the police and the doctors and nurses, taking nothing except the news from people who we left in the ocean. So it was a very crazy three days. And uh, we were 
We had people who lost their family and part of the family were in the water already. And they would give us no news. And after two days, they came and said, well, we sent our ships and everything. Only 13 survived. So 34 were the first round us. And another 13, 47 survived all over, all together from those 200, roughly 50 people. Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. Um, and, I, you know, I, I do want to say thank you for sharing this story. And, and I know that's something that it's not the first time you've told your story, but um, it, it still must be a difficult experience to to reshare. And I think that the benefit of, of sharing this story, and I do hope this goes far and wide, um, will just be to, I mean, for me, I'm just listening to the message about humanity, um, you know, pe that people are people and, and to, to still have hope. Yeah. Um, is like that piece of wood that you were clinging on to. Exactly. So, yeah, um, it depends. I, I've done this a lot of times and sometimes I don't know how deep in the story I can go and how much details I can give. So I'm always trying to be careful not going too detailed. Of, of course, of course. Um, now I'm just, I uh, appreciate whatever you're sharing with us. And I know, thankfully, that I'm speaking to you now, that the, that there was a good ending after all, all those attempts. So, so as seems to be my permanent question here, what next? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fine. Uh, I know it's a long, um, sometimes confusing story, but thanks for asking and Thanks for providing a platform for such stories to be shared. You know, I don't even recognize it as only my story because it's all those people's stories. I'm just privileged to be kind of to to be able to share it. And of course, of course I, was, you're there. I was part of it, but I think it's all of those people's stories in there. So you're their voice too, yes, sir. You're their sure. voice. So. Uh, so three days in that port under authority and they called it medical attention, but I don't believe on that. And um, they send us to a hotel or they call it motel, but fully under immigration. Now, unlike the first time, it was immigration begun because the matter was so serious. We had all yeah. the agencies you can... Al Jazeera, BBC, ABC, all these big news agencies were with camera after breakfast on our face asking questions. So it became mm -hmm. a really serious matter between Australia and Indonesia, got political. And we, I had no idea then, but after I arrived and did a bit of research, I thought, wow, that was a big, big one. So... Yeah. We were there for a few days in that motel under immigration. They did all the investigation, different police, different um, departments from government came and asked questions looking for the smugglers. We gave all the information we could. And uh, they sent us to detention. So now this is a detention that worse than a jail in 
somewhere near Surabaya, which, you know, it's understandable. Indonesia is not a rich country, so imagine the detention yeah. would be exactly like a jail. And, and the worst part was we were 16 single. They put us all together in one big cell for two months. So it means no open door. You are only in the cell and the toilet is in the corner. You are not allowed to go to yard even for fresh air. Fresh air. You're locked oh. in that room because all the news and cameras are gone. And now you're on the immigration alone. And imagine after all those traumatic experiences, you're locked up in a cell with other 16 people who are all going through a traumatic experience. No, I can't understand, Yasser. Yeah. I, 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 I can't. I can't. I can't imagine. Uh, it, it was the worst part, I guess. Um, it was the worst part, and and we ask, we we start even kind of protesting or fighting against it. And you know, you're in a lock locked room, and what you can do. And one of their officers came, said, "Hey, this is Indonesia." This is emigration under my authority, and this is the rule of this emigration, this this detention. Whoever come new has to stay two months in indoor until you get permission to come to the yard for fresh air, which exactly what happened. So we were locked there two months, and after two months they opened the door just for us to come to the yard. Oh my goodness. And at that time, did you know how you were going to be processed or when you were going to be processed? Were they giving you any information? Well, there is there is not reliable source. First, we don't have internet, no Google, right? Mm. Second, you hear rumors from other people, other people from other cells would come there are like old timers there two years five years three years a person eight years and when you see these things you're scared like eight years in detention how is that possible you're not mm. even criminal <laughs> and um, yeah. and those were our source of information and they would give us an idea of what is the process the immigration officer would come every six months to the detention they register you and they go come god knows when for your interview which might take two years might take five years might take 18 months you never know there is no rules so i mean look back on this theme of hope gosh did did you have any still had you lost it i still knew i i don't want to go back i remember we were locked in first two months in that detention and finally a person from Iranian embassy came because again that was a big news right it was 250 people died in the boat it's all over the news in the world not even Australia or Indonesia all over the world um, and a person came one day he he didn't even open the door for us you know as a someone from embassy he just came to the window he said who wanna get deported the only thing I can do for you is whoever want to be deported to Iran, I make the process faster. Write ah. your name here. That's it. And he went. He gave us a number. He never responded. 
and I even didn't go in front to talk to him because we were cursing from behind the whole the oh. whole regime and everything continuing the protest right that I was doing in Iran yeah. because I it was yeah. clear for me that I, I don't you know they're gonna I knew what would happen if he come back but anyways um, that was the the only thing he came in um, there was an Iranian guy only there. There were Somalian, Afghans, Iraqi, but there was only one Iranian guy who is in Sydney now. And he was very helpful. He would go around to other cells, collect biscuits, gilet, mm-hmm. food, whatever was there, and bring it us for bring bidding for us. And there was old timers mm-hmm. there who had phone, mobile phone. He would borrow that and bring it to us for call. And he would go around, come to the window, put all this stuff through the window into the cell and go again. He was a very helpful uh, guy and he was a source of hope for us. We could talk to him as well. That was us. Yeah. Personally for me, um, I, I had a mentor in Iran once. He said, he, he was very big in service, right? He always, mm-hmm. he always would tell us to do service in any situation, helping others. And I remembered what he said. So I started doing that in that cell, which was, a, you know, a 20 meters a square big room with 16 people in it who can't go out. Yeah. And the toilet was in the corner. That was it. So I started yeah. talking to these people and trying to help them. For example, there was a guy who lost his entire family and he attempted to kill himself a few times. And I was like attending to him, talking to him, you know, stopping him on beating his head against the wall and all these things. So that was the other source of hope or help or something that helping me to go through day by day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And that was it. And after two months, they opened the door. And of course, we went to the yard and it was more people, more talking. And there was a lady from GSR, um, in Indonesia, and that was the only woman who were allowed to come to detention. Um, and she would come for an hour talking to these people. And there was a guy mm-hmm. who would speak English and translate for us. And we would talk to him, get a bit of hope from her. Sorry, her. And uh, she would go. Uh, her name was Taka. And she always mm-hmm. wore white. She would come to the tension, mm-hmm. sit on the corner. Everyone would go to him, whoever wants to talk to her. And she would go. So that that was kind of our life. That yeah. <laughs> going around yeah. talking to her or talking to each other. But again, I'm a restless guy. I can't be stuck. <laughs> same thing, same thing, same feeling. And that was my um, second and last escape from the tension. So you I escaped did. yes <laughs> oh my word uh that was that was a big one uh and i hope one day i can write it in my book because it's exactly what you see in hollywood movies and i wasn't i, I even sometimes don't believe it happened to me i feel like it was like all oh, a movie i watched or it was a yeah dream. yeah but you know when you're under pressure and you have a bit of I don't know, hope or that feeling that you don't want to give up in you. 
you just want to go yeah. you just want to find solution and it just come front of you <laughs> so they opened the door we are a few weeks now going around the cells around the yard speak walls and it was a proper detention i'm telling you it was like a mm-hmm. big jail long wall like tall walls and it was three layers of different fence on the top right so yeah sorry three layers fence. of different you know these uh, fence that has you know in the ah. jail on the wall they put something um, like a circle i don't know what they call it Bar- yes, barbed wire yes exactly so three layers of those yeah. with different style and um, the only chance we had was there was those little rooms on the corner that soldiers go stay but because it was detention mm-hmm. they wouldn't any officers go stay up there they would just okay, stay at yeah. the office looking at us behind the fence uh, because they divided the detention to two so one part was the office and offices the other part was cells and the yard we were mingling around so we managed to escape seven of us managed to escape only four made it and three got arrested on the way and heavily beaten heavily beaten it was oh, so gosh. bad that the australian journalist went from australia there to interview him and it's happening in youtube oh, after we escaped um, this guy was arrested on the way Oof. So where where did you go to? Well, sorry, I know it's an overwhelming um, story and there's a lot happening there. But um, yeah, so we, we escaped and uh, which, is, which is a long story. I don't want to go there at all. Uh, it was with the help of yeah. a person out though, Indonesian, who mm-hmm. had to be, mm-hmm. who happened to be a girlfriend of one of these guys we escaped with right she helped us to escape a lot mm-hmm. because otherwise we couldn't so we went back to jakarta and it of course take us kind of two days to get back to jakarta because we were kind of around surabaya and uh, it was my kind of last time and i I, re- I never forget when we were kind of almost getting to jakarta i started seeing all those lights and buildings and I was crying yeah. because because I saw that scene a lot of times because each time I attempt, yeah. I couldn't go forward. I, I was just getting rejected, <laughs> right? And now after yeah. all of these incidents and this traumatic experience, now I'm back again in Jakarta. What's happening in my life? Why why stop? Oh. So um, I was really upset, but kind of alive as well in the same time and that was my last time and uh the rest of my story which was very different to start from there which i went and find some iranians who were there under unacr and they told me how to register so i went and i registered with unacr in a couple of months and then i told them my story and then i went through the process which eventually took me around three years to get my visa to come to Australia. So you were in Jakarta for three, three more years. years. Yeah, but not dealing with those type of people anymore. My life 
were yeah. changed totally because now I gave up the boat. I still don't want to go back. I can't go back. But now I have UNHCR yeah. and I have some people who are with UNHCR for a long time and they give me right information. So I registered with UN um, and I stayed there and I went through process, which is a very long process. And and I I I am one of the very lucky ones because people are usually wait seven, six, eight years until they get their visa. Wow. Um, so what, what year did you then leave Jakarta and, and did you come straight to Australia? Yes, uh, so uh, I I got the interview with Australian Embassy, which wasn't my option. It's the UNHCR call that where they send you. Okay. And they accepted me. They gave me visa, the ticket, 2014. I guess it was July 2014. I arrived in Australia. Um, and they sent me to Brisbane because I had first month you get caseworker and a free first month accommodation until you get sorted. Um, so I went to Brisbane. Oh, yes, sir. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you here. Um, I want to I want to hear this story up to today, and. I'm still trying to process everything because it's still the first time that I've heard it. Would could we do a part two? Yes, yes of course. Of course. <laughs> um, I think just to, um, for for yeah, you as well in sharing yeah. it and for for the listeners to absorb exactly. it. Yeah. Um, that I think, uh, and I'd like to do it. I'd like to do it quite quickly, if that's okay. So yes, sure. that that this part one becomes um, uh, the July podcast, and then part two becomes the August podcast. Um, I just, I I had no idea what to expect. Obviously, I I read the, just a very very short passage that was connected with a university. Um, but I, I really had no. I don't even. I haven't even got the words. I had absolutely no idea. I can't. And here's me, like you know, call, calling it um, the essence of hope. Dear God, I mean, the amount of times you must have lost hope and and regained it, and and there's that little that little pilot inside <laughs> that's still driving to move forwards um i hope at least my story fits your podcast i don't know um oh oh <laughs> it it's it, it, it's no it's 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 not a, it's it's not about it's not about fitting the podcast it's about this is such an important message on 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 many many more counts than just looking at hope and looking at how we lead ourselves yeah. It's a much bigger story, and um, you know, I I really hope that you do write that book, but don't say anything yet because that we're going to talk about that in part two. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to talk about Brisbane onwards. We're going to talk about how you assimilated, how you looked for work, how you do what you're doing now. Um, and I just want people to absorb the last 
what hour and 20 um and and think i actually would like to invite people to reflect on their own lives and their own challenges and what hope means for them um because i think yes and as airy you are an ambassador sorry i'm going to get emotional here thank you you're an ambassador of hope thank you very <laughs> much thank you um yeah thanks for giving this platform and sharing my story um it's i really appreciate that and i did my best to <laughs> i did my best to um you know not going too much details or sharing it in a shorter version there is a lot happening there but uh, at least your listener get the at the kind of a big picture of the story of of course of course no i am um, the the i imagine them must be an awful lot more detail an awful lot more emotion and um and and also i mean you know thinking about your family and what have you but yes sir let's um let's leave it there on on a note of hope in good old brizzy sure. <laughs> and um thank you and i will be in touch very very soon to um to to be in conversation with you again Definitely. for part, part two going to be about the land of hope australia so <laughs> How wonderful. Yes, sir, until we speak again, which will be a very short time. Thank Go you very well. much. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening, and we hope that this conversation provided the insights and inspiration that you were looking for. Authentic Leadership is currently ranking fourth in the top 25 Australian leadership podcasts. We'd love you to help us get to number one and to get the key messages about modern day leadership out there. And this is how you can help. Head over to Apple iTunes and do three quick things. Subscribe, give us a positive rating and write a short review. Also, if you can follow us on Spotify and subscribe to the podcast on YouTube by visiting the at being Brainsmart channel, we'd really appreciate it. And before you go, if you'd like to know what I do when I'm not interviewing amazing guests, I help people in business to lead better, work smarter, build great teams and thrive in change. To find out more, head over to the BrainSmart website. That's brain-smart.com to see examples of our programs or email me, Claire, that's C-L-A-R-E, at brain-smart.com. Go well and thanks for listening.